welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. And then, how the Book of the Law was restored to its former position. We're now going to look at the next couple of things that happened. And if you've got a Bible with you, if you want to follow, if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm going to start reading from verse 13. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs and in their courtyards and in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. And then moving on into chapter 9, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood in their places and they confessed their sin and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Barney, Gadmael, Shebaniah, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bani and Kenanai, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmael, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah and Hethahiah, said, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are God. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, 
and all their starry host. The earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that's in them. You gave life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ere of the Chaldees and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites and Gergesites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. And you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger... You gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land that you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you had performed amongst them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore you didn't desert them. Even when they cast themselves an image of a calf, and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. 
You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Shion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued them before the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full, and they were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who'd admonished them in order to turn back to you. They committed awful (coughs) blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through the prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to neighbouring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that's come upon us, upon our kings and our leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today, in all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers 
did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying the great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. But see, we're slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruits and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, the Levites and the priests, are affixing their seals to it. So what we read here is the next stage, and I know that was an awfully long passage. But the next thing that happened was they restored a time of celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. They went out into the countryside, and they cut down branches from the trees, and built these tents, or booths. And then, they went out for a whole week and lived in them. They lived in them on their rooftops and in the courtyards. It's a bit like going to Stoney, or something like that, isn't it? You get out your tent and you go and live in it for a week. But what was that all about? What it was actually about was they were remembering their true identity. What they were saying was, we might be living in a city today, a city that we've just been spending time rebuilding, but actually, that's not where we belong, because we're a pilgrim people. They were remembering something that was solid and important from their history. And that's something that they needed to remember. Because what they were remembering was that as true children of God, the earthly Jerusalem wasn't their final destination. They held on to a far greater hope. Abraham... Their pilgrim father, okay, with an eye, had seen in faith a city with foundations that God had put in place. And from that day on, Abraham couldn't continue to live in Ur of the Chaldees. He went and he made his home in a tent. And actually, every time they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, that's what they were remembering. And you know, the same thing should be true for us. Although we want to build something substantial in our generation, our eyes need to be focused on the glorious hope that will be revealed to us when Jesus returns. We have a hope of a magnificent future. And we need to constantly remember that we are a people whose roots are somewhere else. We don't belong here. We're only on this earth temporarily. That whole idea of living in a tent, living in a booth, 
comes back to the fact they were only living there temporarily. You know, what is a tent? It's something that's put up in an hour and blown down by the wind in five minutes. It's something insubstantial that's only there for a short while. In Galatians 1.4, Paul writes, talking about Jesus, He gave himself up for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. We're not only delivered from sin and guilt and punishment, but actually we have been delivered from this evil age. In 1 Corinthians 7.31 it says, Those who use the things of the world should do so as if not engrossed in them. When you look at the passage and the context of it, what he's really saying is those of us who have dealings with the world ought to be as though we don't have dealings with it. When you look at that passage, he goes through several things where he's saying, well, sometimes we have to do things in this world, but we should be as if we haven't. And time and time again, Scripture tells us not to be conformed to this world. What does it actually say? It says we should be conforming the world to what Christ wants. We shouldn't be letting the world squeeze us into its mould. The night's almost gone. Day's at hand. We are children of daylight, not of the night. We shouldn't be taken up with something that is going to vanish in a moment of time. The book of Revelation tells us that the great Babylon, that mighty city, will crumble to dust in just an hour. We live in a passing age. We mustn't get caught up in it. Worldwide, there's currently quite a move of the Holy Spirit going on. And I believe that outpouring of the Holy Spirit across the earth is heralding and preparing things for the return of Christ. It's almost here. Why would we give our lives to anything less? Paul says, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. It's in Romans 5 too. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Our ultimate hope mustn't be focused even just on restoring the church. It needs to be focused on the return of Jesus. Throughout 1 Corinthians we're told that we may prophesy, but we only prophesy in part. We may have tongues, but one day they will cease. Why? Because it says, when the perfect comes, those things that we only do partially will disappear. It says, today, we see as if looking through a mirror dimly. But one day, we're going to see it as if it's face to face. There's a famous uh, preacher who became an author as well, A.W. Tozer. And he was going to preach one night on Isaiah 6. You know, then I saw the Lord. Yeah, do you know the, the passage I mean? 
And he started off by saying, tonight I'm going to speak about the holiness of God. (laughs) But I'm no fool. No one should speak about it because we know nothing of it. What he was saying was this spiritual giant of a man actually declared himself to be a fool to speak of something he knew nothing of. We only know a pinprick of the truth. And yet that pinprick of truth has totally transformed us. What would it be like when we see Jesus? In a few moments of worship, we will catch glimpses of his glory. But one day, we will see him face to face. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. It says, his face will shine like the sun. Have you ever thought about it? The sun is something we can't even gaze upon without damaging our eyes. Yet Jesus, when he returns, will shine like the sun. There'll be no place for shadows. It will bring warmth and power. Just think how powerful the sun is. Nothing that man has invented even stands next to it. So remember, God may have given us nice homes, healthy bodies, but actually it's only really a tent. In 2 Corinthians 5 it starts off, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, We have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. God might have given us material wealth, but we have to make sure that our eyes are fixed on the things that are unseen and eternal. And as the Israelites dwelt in their tents for the Feast of Tabernacles, that's what they were remembering. They were remembering their true identity as the people of God. They were showing that they were different to the people around them. And we need to be seen as different to the society around us. And I don't mean that we do that just by building successful churches, but actually we have to have a totally different approach to life. Why? Because we have no fear of death and we're looking forward to meeting Jesus. And then, as we move into the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, we read the next big thing that the Israelites did. And this was that long passage. They recounted their history. They went right back to Abraham and started to talk about their history. And we need to know our history too. It's good to know where your roots are from. Sometimes you go into meetings and you hear charismatics pray. And you think what's going on in the church only started in our generation. 
some of us have no grasp on what God has been doing throughout the ages. Even in our prayer and our praise times, we can reflect this short-sighted view. Now, it's pointless for us to try and live in the past, but it's good for us to be clear that the church has not just arrived on the scene. It has been there throughout the ages. We have a wonderful 2,000 years of heritage. And if we want to know our identity, we need to rediscover our roots and be aware of church history. The other week when I was away at Brighton, I went to a couple of seminars by um, a guy called Ray Lowe. And he often teaches on church history. But this time he was taking quite an interesting line. He was, he was taking a historical look at the theological argument about cessationalism. For those who aren't aware of the term, cessationalists are those who believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not manifested in the church today, that they ceased at the time of the apostles. And actually what he did was he just looked at church history and he said, this is what was going on in the first century church. This is what was going on in the 2nd century and the 3rd century. This is what Bede wrote about in the Middle Ages. This was what was going on in the 18th century. Actually, the gifts of the Spirit have never ceased. There have always been expressions of the Holy Spirit in the church. And it's helpful. It's helpful to know that and to understand the heritage in which we walk. We're lucky today that we live in days when we can read so many books. There are so many wonderful biographies out there. People like Hudson Taylor, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Praying Hyde, Smith Wigglesworth, just to name a few. We have a wonderful family tree. Do you know about them? I just want to encourage you, read about the lives of men like that. Rub shoulders with them, get to know them. Because they are our forefathers. And we need to rediscover the history of some of these amazing men and women. And actually, you'll find you feel very much at home with them. Read Ian Murray. Discover the Puritan hope. And what you'll find is their hope coincides with ours. Read Broadbent's Pilgrim Church. And what you'll find is that we are part of a great ongoing move of God. Be stimulated by that. Be strengthened by it. Or if you want to focus more on the recent, read Terry's No Well-Worn Paths and understand where as a family of churches we have come from. Going back to Nehemiah, it was as these pioneering settlers were restored in Jerusalem that they needed to get great comfort by rereading their history together. And that's what's recorded in Nehemiah 9. What they saw and what they were able to catch up with was the big sweep of God's purposes through history. 
and see something of the overall plan of God. And in doing that, they could make sense of their own identity. We have a benefit. I mean, they had the law and their history. And they could see from that that God was doing something across the ages. We have the end of the book as well. We know how it's going to finish. And so with a growing sense of purpose, they finished building the walls. And then they arranged a huge celebration and dedication. A festival, a praise, a praise party. They brought the Levites to Jerusalem so that they could celebrate the dedication with hymns and with cymbals and harps and lyres. And Nehemiah arranged for the leaders to mount the wall and he appointed two huge choirs to march around it. You can read about that further on in Nehemiah 12. It starts at verse 27 through to verse 40. He had one choir walking around in one direction and another choir walking around the walls in the opposite direction. It wasn't that long ago that Tobiah had been saying, even if a fox was to climb up on your walls, it will fall down. And yet here we see choirs marching around them. What a day! What a celebration! And then they concluded their march and they offered sacrifices and rejoiced. It says, even the women and children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Now, I don't know what to make of the even the women and children. Obviously, they were a grumpy lot, usually. But even the women and children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Now, that's how we should be celebrating. Because if it's fitting for them to be celebrating in that way, how much more fitting is it for the church of God to display joy that is unspeakable and full of glory? Praise should be one of the marks of the church in these days. It should have been throughout the whole history. If you look in Philippians 3, verse 3, Paul made it quite clear what he felt was a distinctive sign of a true church. What would separate it and make it obvious from anything else. What he said is, For we are the true circumcision who worship God, sorry, who worship in the Spirit of God. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. Now, he could have used all sorts of different phrases to describe the true true church. He could have said, Oh, mm, it's those of us who believe in the atonement. That would have been true. He could have said, It's those of us who had direct contact with the early apostles. 
actually what he said was, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So if you arrive in a new town because you've just moved house and you're wondering where the true church of God is, a biblical way of identifying them according to Paul is that the true, church, true people of God will be those who are worshipping in the spirit. That's what will mark them out. That's what will make them identifiable. He could have said that the true circumcision was those who kept truth in doctrine. But he didn't. And the reason for that is quite simple. If you find a company who are really worshipping in the spirit, you found a church that spent time sorting other things out. Because they are worshipping in spirit and truth. And if they are worshipping in spirit and truth, then things like love and unity have to prevail. Now, worshipping in the spirit doesn't come easy. Not in the local church. It doesn't happen overnight. And it's interesting. The book of Nehemiah doesn't start with the marching and rejoicing choirs and the orchestra on the hills. But it gets there eventually. I think it's good. We are seeing growing worship in local churches today. It's great when there's a diversity of instruments, when we see young people involved. You know, I don't know what you feel. All sorts of musical talents can add to our worship. Drums and cymbals. But I've got to a point where actually the harmonium isn't one of them anymore. For me, it doesn't take me to the right place. A mighty organ just about does. But actually, I want something more heartfelt. Because God is worthy of all our enthusiasm and the culmination of all our worship and skills put together. And in these churches, a revolution is taking place. Englishmen, stiff upper-lipped, reserved and respectable. Those Englishmen who would have usually kept their hands by their sides have become hand-clapping, hand-raising extremists. Praise, joyful, heartfelt worship has replaced formal hymn-singing. Participation has become a key word that supersedes passivity. More and more people are taking part in worship with spoken and sung prophecies, tongues, interpretation, visions, or playing music. And even as a small group here, we are seeing that. The amount of contribution that we see on a Sunday morning has grown over the past two years. Is that true, Malk? Yeah. The manifestation of the presence of God has at times been almost breathtaking. 
We need to focus our vision on the city of God, on the government of Christ, and the purpose of God to reach the nations through a glorious church. Some of the new worship songs melt our hearts and they've helped us to understand God's personal and intimate love for us. We may have stood or knelt, but somehow hymn, hymn boards and bored hymn singers need to become relics of the past. Praise and worship have to become not only an expression of love, but also a declaration of war as we commit ourselves to our King, to his kingdom and to his bride and make ourselves ready for his return with heartfelt joy. God is filling out our worship. It's gradually becoming more worthy of him. And that's got to be a feature that characterises our church life. Because one day, we need to be able to say, the joy of Doncaster was heard from afar. Wouldn't that be great? Do you reckon? Even the women and children... Even the women and children. And the joy of Doncaster was heard from afar. Should we just We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. 